giving us your word, for giving us community, for giving us family. Um, thank you for bringing the Fergusons to us and, and the blessing they've been. And uh, we just look forward to him opening up Psalm 98 in front of us and just showing us how we can see your son there. Use our brother, I pray, and just open our hearts to receive um, what you would say to us here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Kevin. Good morning, Cars Church. Merry Christmas. Uh, <clears throat> happy Boxing Day, too, if you're into that. Uh, but mostly Merry Christmas. <laughs> Isn't one of the most fun parts about the Christmas season everyone's unique traditions that they have? <clears throat> There's church traditions, and not just Cars Church, but the whole church across every era and area has its traditions. And something that I love about Karis is that, uh, and you may be aware of this, depending on how much you've looked at our website, um, but while we're baptistic in conviction and practice, uh, we want to consider ourselves interdenominational. And if you stick around here long enough, meet enough people, uh, you will meet some really awesome people who have come from uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Charismatic backgrounds as well, at the very least. Um, and one of the church traditions that I've learned from my brothers and sisters who come from this more liturgical tradition uh, is that Advent and Christmas are two distinct seasons. For many people, the Christmas season starts right after Thanksgiving, maybe even uh, right after Halloween, if you're really eager. Um, but for the church, that time from Thanksgiving to Christmas is the time of Advent. It's a time of waiting and anticipation of Jesus' coming. And then starting on Christmas Eve through the next 12 days is Christmas, uh, the season of Christmas, where we celebrate Jesus' arrival and his birth. And um, I can see the wheels turning in some of your heads right now the same way that mine did when I realized that the song, 12 Days of Christmas, is not just like something random, but it's kind of has a, a base in history. Uh, but all that to say, don't feel like you have to be rushed to take down your Christmas tree today, uh, turn off the Christmas music, cut your Christmas tradition short, because um, you got like another week and a half. Yeah, and um, so the church has our traditions, uh, and then we all have you know unique personal or family traditions. Uh, my wife Caitlin and I we spent the last couple days in Kansas City with her family, and they usually have Christmas running like a pretty tight ship. Uh, we go, everyone gets in a big circle, one by one, we open our presents in a nice orderly fashion. Um, Christmas brunch. Grandma's famous Christmas breakfast casserole, followed by uh, a nap and then playing marbles with Grandpa. Yeah, very fun. It's a little bit different in my house. Um, we like to open our presents all at once, in kind of this flurry of ribbons and wrapping paper. My mom makes her signature sausage bread. It's delicious, and we have some sparkling grape juice. 
And then uh, for the rest of the day, me and my dad will either watch sports or talk about politics. Always fun as well. The one thing my mom always makes us do, tries to anyway, is watch Scrooge on Christmas Eve while she finishes wrapping the last several presents. If you haven't seen it, um, Scrooge is, is the 1970 musical adaptation of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. And it's fantastic. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, I'll just give you a quick summary. And um, sorry, you know, get a spoiler alert for something that's been out for 180 years. <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge is a miserly old businessman who only thinks about money. He's reluctant even to give his one employee, Bob Cratchit, the day off of Christmas from work. But on Christmas Eve, he's visited by these three ghosts. Ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. They show him his memories, his loved ones, uh, even his own fate, if he doesn't repent from his selfish ways. When Scrooge wakes up, he realizes that the ghosts have given him another chance to change. And so he goes throughout the town on Christmas morning singing, at least in the musical version. Uh, he buys the Cratchit family this plump Christmas goose. He pays for Tiny Tim's doctors. He forgives the debts of everyone in town who owes him any money, which is basically it. Why am I telling you all this? Um, not just so you can you know, spend a, a Christmas at the Ferguson household. Well, as I'm looking through this passage for the last few weeks, I notice the way it's structured. Uh, and take a look. In your Bibles, uh, the translators of most of our Bibles have probably already done the work for us here, highlighting in the way that they space out these verses. Psalm 98 is broken up into three three-verse stanzas. And once you know it, they all have their own kind of time-oriented focus. The first stanza implores us to sing God's praise for what he's done in the past. The second stanza, how and why we should praise him now in the present. And then the third stanza is about how all creation will sing God's praise into the future. Past present, and future. I want us to read this song in light of the Christmas season. Why do we have a reason to praise? What promises do we see here in this passage? <coughs> How can we remember, rest, and live out these promises uh, for the rest of the Christmas season as we move into 2022? You can believe that? It's almost here. And as we as Chorus continue the ministry which God has called us, how can we remember, rest, and live out these promises here? So what are the promises? First then, the promise of Christmas past is this. It's that Jesus is our salvation. Let's read that, the first verse, the first stanza of this psalm again. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. 
all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And while this psalm, uh, without a doubt, it points us to Jesus, we also have to remember, we have to keep in mind, uh, we can't just skip over the original meaning, the original context of the psalm. In fact, knowing that original meaning and context is going to help us see Jesus more clearly in the comparisons, but also in the contrasts. When this psalm was originally written, the psalmist has in mind that great display of God's salvation that Israel always looks back to, the exodus from Egypt. You can tell, if you look at the similarities between this stanza and the song of Moses in Exodus 15, it's this you know, psalm right in the middle of Exodus. As soon as the people of God cross the Red Sea, um, they break into this song. We won't read the whole thing right now, uh, but here's some of the highlights. And I put in the slides some of the highlights from the song of Moses and then compared to this first stanza of this song. Here are the highlights. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. You can see when those passages are kind of side by side, the similarities are pretty clear. But it's also in the contrast between the song, the song of Moses and Psalm 98, where we see God working salvation in a brand new way. In Exodus, God saves his people as a man of war. In Isaiah, the prophet tells us that the baby will be called the Prince of Peace. In Exodus, horse and rider are thrown into the sea. At Christmas, foreigner and shepherd are invited to come in and see. In the Exodus story, God, in the greatness of his majesty, overthrows his enemies. And at the conclusion of the Christmas story, Jesus in his greatness and his majesty, gives himself over to his adversaries. Both are salvation stories. The one, the first, the story of God saving his people from slavery in an evil empire. The second, an even greater exodus, God's salvation of his people from sin and death itself. Every day, but all the more during the Christmas season, we have this promise that with the birth of Jesus, God has decisively acted in human history to bring about our salvation. But we can be confident that even before our world was made, that Jesus was always God's plan and God's promise to deliver his people. So when we read this song today, we can, in fact, we must sing a new song together as the song implores. Because God has done an even more marvelous thing than he did in the Exodus. It is Jesus. 
God has revealed his righteousness to the nations, and it's Jesus. By his faithful love, God remembers his people, and he sends them Jesus. By the might of his holy arm, God works salvation in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So how do we rest in that promise of Christmas past, that first Christmas? I know so many of you already know this. It's something we talk about a lot at Cars. But as Paul said, to repeat myself is of no trouble, and it's of great value for all of us. For starters, Cars, find your identity in Jesus only. Rest in the fact that no other identity or relationship or accomplishment gets to define who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. Whether you're in the auditorium right now or you're watching from your grandma's house, the new Beyonce that you did or did not introduce to your family does not define you. The presents and food that you did or did not bring to Christmas morning does not define you. The Christmas bonus that you did or did not receive doesn't define you. That's part of this promise of Christmas past, that Jesus is our salvation, and in that it's who we are in him that already defines us. The promise of Christmas present, then, is that Jesus is our King. Let's go back to the second stanza together. <clears throat> Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Again, this is one of the things I feel like I end up saying so often when I'm up here. Um, but it wasn't already more than enough that Jesus saved us from sin and death. He also came to bring God's heavenly kingdom to earth. We read through the stanza, and initially we're kind of like, yeah, that's cool, that's nice. You know, singing and, you know, a bunch of music. Um, and we kind of keep moving to the last part, maybe. But if we go too fast, we'll miss something very overlookable here. We've got these different instruments listed off. The lyre, the accompanying melody, trumpets, sound of the horn. And if you're like me, you're thinking trumpets and the horn, it's a little redundant, right? But don't miss the significance of this horn. One commentary I read this week um, says this is not some kind of, um, this is not one horn in the brass section. This is a very special horn. He says whatever kind of horn this is, it's not just one among the rest. It was the horn. When this horn sounded, it meant something big was about to go down. At the beginning of 1 Kings, this horn sounds at the inauguration and the anointing of the new king, Solomon. The crowds gather, shouts of joy break out, 
the good news of a new king is proclaimed? It's very similar. The same thing happens when Jesus is born. A multitude of angels gather together. They sing praises. The shepherds go and see. And then they return to the city, praising all the way, telling people the good news of what has just happened. And that's how this stanza concludes in the song. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And here's a good question for us as well. What does life look like in this King's kingdom? That horn has another clue for us. Because that same commenter noted another thing. That the sounding of this horn announced the year of Jubilee. If you're not familiar with the year of Jubilee, it's okay. You can read all the details if you're interested in Leviticus 25. Um, but here's just kind of a quick summary, quick rundown. Um, every seven days, the people of Israel would have a Sabbath day. Every seven years, the people of God would have a Sabbath year where the land rested. And then every seven Sabbath years, on that 50th year, 7 times 7, 49, on that 50th year was a year of Jubilee. That was the year that all, that it was the year that slaves were set free, that debts were canceled, and that all the land that had changed hands over the last generation went back to its original family. It was a fresh start for the people of God. The year of Jubilee was often called the year of the Lord's favor. And if that sounds familiar, let's keep going. It's the year of the Lord's favor, the ultimate Jubilee, that Jesus proclaims in Luke chapter 4. Remember that passage? Jesus goes to preach on the synagogue on the Sabbath. He steps into the pulpit. Someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah, and he unfurls it right to this part. In Luke, it's verses 18 and 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sits back down. And here's his sermon after reading this passage. That's about me. And it just happened. That's the, path. That's the sermon. Cards. Jesus sounded that horn. The king is on the throne right now. And the kind of kingdom he rules is one that's characterized by the Lord's favor. Because we were poor with nothing worthwhile to offer God. And Jesus the King proclaimed good news to us. He said, in my kingdom, debts are canceled. We're blind to the truth of who Jesus is, and His Spirit made us see His glory. We're oppressed, and we're captive to our sin, and Jesus proclaimed liberty to us. In this kingdom, by my blood, slaves go free. This is the way of Jesus' kingdom. And, it's, and the way we remember this kingship 
this Christmas is by sharing that jubilee with others. We share God's generosity when we meet with the poor in our city. We cancel debts we owe others. We cancel debts that others owe us when we forgive their sins in the same way that God forgave our sins. We proclaim liberty to the oppressed when we work for justice and righteousness in our church, in our city, and across the world. Friends, the promise of Christmas present is that Jesus is the king of our world right now. And that he's given us a new way of living right now. And so finally, the promise of Christmas future is that Jesus is our hope. Once more, let's return to Psalm 98 and read that final stanza. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I know at the beginning of this sermon I brought up uh, this, that distinction between Advent and Christmas. Um, but bear with me, because this Christmas sermon has a Adventy kind of ending. But that's where the psalm, that's how the psalm closes, closes out. Look at the specific words here. He comes. He will judge. The last part of this passage is future-oriented. I mean... For goodness sake, the world, the word Advent literally means coming or arrival. The psalmist looks forward to that final fulfillment of everything else he's written in the psalm. It hasn't happened yet, but he has the hope that it will. And Carl's Church, this is something we really need to remember. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about a kind of whimsical optimism. When the Bible speaks of hope, it's speaking of assuredness and that which has been secured on our behalf. We hope in a future that is promised and all that has come to pass. And look at this hope for future in our passage. Oceans and rivers dancing, every aquatic creature in chorus, the mountains themselves singing for joy at the advent of the righteous judge. It's a lot different than the world as we know it right now, isn't it? We can relate much more to the imagery Paul gives us in Romans 8, where the creation is groaning in this anticipation to be set free from the futility that our sin has brought about like the world itself is experiencing the pain of childbirth as it waits for Jesus to finish this new creation project that he started. We wait for the day, as Revelation puts it, when there will be no darkness or sea, that is, no chaos or evil to threaten God's world. When the dwelling place of God will be with man, when he wipes every tear from our eyes, and there's no mourning or crying or pain, and even death itself is done away with. Church family, those images are what Psalm 98 is looking forward to. 
Their hope is ultimately in Jesus, God's Messiah, who will return to our world, judge with righteousness and justice, and cast out everything evil forever. The promise of Christmas' future is that Jesus is our hope. <clears throat> so how do we live in light of that hope? That certain future that Psalm 98 gives us about God returning to the praises of His creation. That the rest of Scripture gives us about Jesus setting things right once and for all. It means we can live generously and missionally, just like Jesus, as we wait for his second advent. It means we can give extravagantly gifts to our family and our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and not in a kind of consumeristic way, but in a, hey, I genuinely love you and I want to bless you. Kind of way. Not in a tit for tat kind of way, but in a I don't care that you didn't get me anything in return, because that's not what this gift is about kind of way. It means we pursue a missional focus with joy. When we talk to, when we serve people in our community, we can admit, yeah, the holidays aren't always the easiest. I'm overworked. Family can stress me out. But I love the Christmas season because it reminds me how to see Jesus again in a new way. As the self-giving God who came to save us and show us how to be human. Our hope in Jesus allows us to live like we have less to lose because we know our future is secure. Having our hope in Jesus lets us live as we have less to lose because we know our future is secure. Church, this psalm, even though it doesn't have stars or shepherds or mangers, it gives us a way to see the Christmas story. Even more than that, it reminds us of these three promises that we so desperately need this season. It reminds us of the past promise that's been fulfilled, that Jesus is our salvation. It reminds us of a present promise that Jesus is our King right now. And it reminds us of a promise for the future, that Jesus is our hope. Church, here's my last question for you. And it's for whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, or if this is one of the first times that you've heard about Jesus or even heard Jesus preach like this. Here's the question. Will you believe this? And I don't just mean believe as in you circle true on a true or false quiz question. Will you put your trust in these promises? Even more than that, will you give your whole life to the person who's at the center of it? Jesus. Turn away from your attempts to save yourself by your achievements or your accomplishments and receive the salvation that God would so graciously give to you. 
turn away from the other kings or queens who you would serve, remove yourself from the throne, and give your allegiance to the only good and true king. Turn from the sloganeering that the world would put in your face and trust the promises of God. Find hope in Jesus, the one who will one day return and set our world right. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you this morning for your word. God, we're blessed each year as we consider just your incarnation of your son. God, even with Christmas Day behind us, would you not let us leave this season or enter into the new year without once again seeing you in a more clear and beautiful way? Give us the grace we need to remember, to rest, to live into your promises. God, I pray for those in our church who are away today, traveling, visiting their families. Um, would that be time of rest, but would you also bring them back safely to us? God, I pray for this congregation this morning, those who are here who, trusted, who have trusted in you and those who haven't, that you would do something new in their lives this morning. God, give us unity as we gather around your table to continue to worship. Show us again who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.